Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of October 2022 and this is episode 272. On today's Dispatches podcast, Dr Neve Gallagher, a University Associate Professor in Modern British and Irish History at St Catherine's College at the University of Cambridge, talks to Professor Richard Grayson, Professor of 20th Century History at Goldsmiths College in the University of London, about Neve's recent book, Ireland and the Great War. This book is a new social and political history of Ireland during the First World War and is published by Cambridge University Press. They both spoke to me over the interweb from their respective offices in Cambridge and Hemel's Hempstead. Richard and Neve, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Now today we're going to take a slightly different uh, format and Richard is going to interview Neve. Uh, this sort of um, format was used at the launch of Neve's book, I think at the Irish Embassy uh, earlier uh, this year. Mm-hmm. And so That's we thought, thought it was a really good good way of actually maybe just changing the format slightly so you actually get some more fresh voices rather than me wittering on again. So on that bombshell, I'll hand over to you, Richard. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, Neve, I'm always interested uh, when a, an historian writes a book as to why they did it. What, what's led them down this path? And I wondered if you could just uh, tell us a bit about how you got to write Ireland and the Great War, a social and political history. Yeah, sure, Richard. Um, and Thomas, I want to say thank you very much for inviting me on this podcast. Really, really fun to chat to you both today. So I became interested in this project in a different way to most people. I didn't have any family background in the First World War. In fact, the First World War was really so far away from my memory, individual, familial, community, national, that it was a real foreign topic in some respects. But I knew that the First World War had happened and there had been books written on Ireland in the First World War. So Ireland indeed must have a history of sorts. And I began by having a look at a pilot. Well, I did a pilot study, which is effectively a kind of tester as a sort of jargony term maybe that historians use, where you go off and you look at a piece of evidence over a series of whatever parameters you put in it and just see what you find. And I um, came across a reference in the book to an interesting phenomenon whereby Catholics and Protestants, who in Ireland uh, had a a long divided history, or at least are painted that way by historians, um, seem to be cooperating in aid of the First World War in a tiny little place in County Cavan, which is in the southern bit of Ulster. Um, So I looked at one of the local newspapers and conducted this pilot study over the series of, um, I think I looked at a handful of months, just to see who was in this organisation and what they did. The organisation was the County Cavan Women's Patriotic Association. It comprised, um, I'd say, you know, fairly middle class Catholic and Protestant women, i.e. those who are the wives and the kind of main shapers in town, in town, so they'd really been known. Um, and they were cooperating in aid of the war effort by getting comforts together, by issuing voluntary appeals, doing some fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought this was very striking because this was in Cavan, a place that had 
no historiography effectively written on it, no, and that means historical works written on it in relation to the war. Um, and I wanted to broaden this picture to see to what extent did Catholics and Protestants, groups who seem to be so divided in Irish history, at least in the way that historians paint them, and indeed, of course, there's some reality when it comes to Northern Ireland in that, in that respect, um, to what extent did these groups cooperate in aid of the First World War? And that's how the project began, Richard. Um, and I expanded it and found similar levels of cooperation in many parts of the country, even including in what is today Northern Ireland, which went against the very sectarian thesis, i.e. the Catholic nationalists, i.e. Catholics who wanted a measure of independence from Ireland, or indeed Protestant unionists, those who wanted no change in that constitutional relationship, actually were able to cooperate during the First World War, despite some of the better known events that happened during that period, such as the Easter Rising, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, and indeed then the, uh, the various parliamentary changes, political changes, whereby Sinn Féin, who are a Republican party, win the first general election in 1918, setting Ireland on a path to independence from Britain, and indeed the resulting settlement that happens in that period, which is partition. Thank you. Um... As I say, it's really interesting, I just think, to hear how people um, can go from, sometimes it is, a, it is a family connection, and you've stressed it's not in your case, but how you can go from one relatively small idea, um, perhaps from student days, into something that, uh, that develops it into a book. On the book, um, people always say don't judge a book by its cover. But uh, actually, the cover is really important. And if I can just describe it to listeners, it, it shows the unveiling of the uh, Cork War Memorial in March 1925, uh, which has uh, an Irish tricolour uh, in the foreground, but also draped over the uh, memorial is a Union flag. Now, this is a surprising photo for many Irish historians because uh, Cork is the rebel county and yet here we have in the middle of the 1920s after a war of independence and the bitterness of a civil war the, the two flags side by side so could you explain why you think this photo is is so important and why you therefore chose it for the cover? Yeah it, it is a really striking photo um, and it's, it's well worth well worth looking at so the photo, well, it came from originally a glass plate that was broken, found under lots of rubbish in the back of a tiny little museum in County Cork. And it was found by um, a man whose grandfather had served in the First World War and who was part of the Cork Western Front Association, who've been doing a lot of really great work in trying to recover experiences, um, not only of veterans, but of communities in the First World War. And the photograph shows um, a rather large crowd of people um, who are turned out for this day for the unveiling of the War Memorial in Cork on St. Patrick's Day in 1925. And uh, what is striking about it is, first of all, the visual imagery, the tricolour that you mentioned, um, very much foregrounded in it, as well as the Union flag. Now, this was Cork, rebel Cork. Cork for a time became the Republic of Cork, believing it was more Republican than the rest of the country put together in the middle of the War of Independence, which was 1919 through to 1921. And certainly it was so, it was so far off my radar that Cork could possibly have such a sort of reconciliatory uh, event in 1925. 
handful of years after this uh, effectively civil war between Ireland and Britain, followed by a civil war within Ireland itself over the terms of what had been agreed between Ireland and Britain. Um, and I tried to dig into who was at this memorial and I found very much a similar pattern to what I had found in the Calvin example that I mentioned, or indeed right throughout the island of Ireland throughout the duration of the war. And this was Catholics and Protestants turning out together to memorialize or to mark and to think about and remember those who had fallen in the First World War. So it was quite striking. It was striking again that this could happen so late into the 1920s, when apparently Catholics and Protestants, defined by their, their political allegiances, nationalists and unionists, have become really estranged, allegedly so. So that was one thing that was striking. Another was that you could have this expression of remembrance with the visual iconography of both the new Irish Republic as well as the Union flag, when these symbols were really contested and had been in the very recent wars that happened after the First World War in Ireland, the War of Independence that I mentioned, and indeed the Civil War in Ireland that resulted in its aftermath. Um, and uh, it was also yeah, very striking that this could happen in the city centre of Cork, because Cork had been burned to the ground by Crown forces during the War of Independence from 1919 through to 1921. So it seemed really quite striking that these symbols could be there, that both groups of all sides who would have had very different political allegiances in that conflict or indeed generally, and that the crowd of people who attended were not just an accidental crowd, they were responding to adverts in newspapers. There was very much a lot of organization that went into this event. There was money and fundraising that had gone into it. You know, this was a concerted community effort to turn out to see deliberately this unveiling on St. Patrick's Day, 1925. So that I think sets the tone of how actually important the First World War was in modern Irish history, which is quite striking given its relative absence in the, in the historical work of the historiography. All summed up in one photo. It's it's really interesting. I think you can see how it would be a, a great piece for students to discuss. Just asking them the question: Why is this photo surprising? Uh, you just mentioned historiography, and you've already talked a little bit about this. But I wondered if you could just reflect on how you see the current state of uh, historiography on Ireland's First World War and how your book engages with that, challenges it, takes it further, those sort of areas. Yeah, so when I came to the project back in 2009, I think it was when I began this work, uh, there was relatively little published about Ireland in the First World War. There had been quite an active military historiography, right? So what the units had done, what the regiments had done, um, kind of battles and strategy and stuff. And I'm sorry to disappoint many of your listeners, that doesn't really interest me in the big questions of how could Ireland, a society that had been pushing for home rule for such a long time, a society that saw a new revolutionary Republican movement start to emerge in its ranks, how could it have put its weight behind the First World War for such a long time? And how did these images of remembrance right throughout the 1920s and even into the 1930s how did they ally with what we know about Ireland in this period? What we did know about Ireland was that Ireland had undergone a revolutionary movement. And the First World War, really until 2009, had not really been a part of that. If anything, it was a backdrop to the main event, kind of warm up act 
rather than the sort of main show. And that main show is the Easter Rising and what happened thereafter. That's the rebellion in Dublin, about 1300, 1500 Irish volunteers uh, occupy key locations across the city centre. And they try to do it elsewhere in Ireland, though less successfully. And um, they fight the Crown forces for about five days before surrendering. Um, 16 of them are executed over, well, mainly over two weeks, but some, some later, like Roger Casement. And this sort of symbolic event um, takes on really great importance in not even the politics of the time, which helped to explain why Sinn Féin, the Republican Party, who takes the credit for the Easter Rising, wins its first general election ever in the 1918 UK general election, and then the War of Independence, etc. that follows. Um, so it's the Rising is sort of the key moment that, that helps to bring all of this together, even though there are very important events prior to 1916 that we should be thinking about as well. Um, but uh, the, these are the, the events that are foregrounded, not only in the historiography, but also in national memory. I mean, if, if you go to Dublin, for instance, the GPO, the General Post Office, is still there on the main street, that's O'Connell Street in Dublin. And there are very few places where I can think of a main street, Oxford Street, wherever, you know, in, in Postama Place, whatever it might be, where you can think of such a, uh, in a way, rudimentary organisation, the post office, still being there on the highest rates, sort of tax rates, than one might think that the land actually costs. Um, so it's very symbolic. And it was symbolically marked in uh, the 2016 centenary, uh, as, was, as it was in 1966. You know, these are the big events in the Irish national memory. These are the events that are marked. These are the distinguishing features of Irishness. They have come to be the kind of central history. The First World War enshrines that. And when I came to this project, it was barely there. Um, like I say, if anything, it was sort of mentioned that perhaps the First World War might have radicalised a few people. That was about it. Um, but it seemed to me that the First World War was much more than just who fought whom on the Western Front or what happened in Gallipoli. But how do you explain these incongruences between this revolutionary movement and fighting for a conflict that until then I thought was Ireland, you know, helping the British war effort? So that's really what this historiography was saying. Uh, there had been effectively nothing written on um, in some ways, this is, is quite striking, and it says a lot about how we conceptualise nationality. There had been nothing written about the Irish who had emigrated, or indeed who signed up in regiments elsewhere. If the First World War was mentioned, it was about recruitment from Ireland alone. And this, to me, also seemed fundamentally flawed, not least because one third of Irish-born people lived outside the island of Ireland in 1911. One third and this isn't to include first generation Irish people, second generation Irish people, or those from the island of Ireland who indeed signed up in a regiment outside of Ireland. And as you and I know, Richard, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission very well indicates that most Irish people who fell in the First World War were not within the Irish regiments. They were in other units. This is a much more complicated picture. So I wanted to bring an emigration which had not been there. I wanted to have a more sort of capacious understanding of Irishness, not rooted to who was born in Ireland, which in a way I think is a very problematic way of thinking about nationality to begin with. Um, so I wanted to expand that horizon. And I did that by thinking about Ireland and the British Empire. And you might ask, well, why, why the empire? Why not look at the Irish in America? I mean, surely more of them are there. And there's a lot of truth within that. 
But America didn't enter the war until 1917, unlike the British Empire, which was a part of the conflict right from the start. So my time with the Cork Western Front Association helped to reveal some very striking facts. And that was that the majority of Irish people from Cork who had fallen in the First World War had fallen in regiments within the British Empire, not in the American forces. So this was another kind of good evidential claim as to why I should look at the Irish who served in the British Empire regiments. And by doing so, it kind of opened up this world of how Irishness itself was a very important motivator for so many different people all across Canada, Newfoundland, in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Africa as well, also in Britain. And, and how this dimension of the war, this kind of nationality invested with different meanings, perhaps in different places, um, itself became a sort of uh, useful phenomenon as to why so many people joined up. And so many then communities made that war effort possible because it is frequently forgotten that no war effort could have possibly occurred had it not been for the support of those who stayed at home, whether it was through armament production, food supplies, bringing you know, letters to the, to, the, to the front. And this is a constant circulation of people, not to mention the wounded, you know, happening between home and front. So that segregation between them is something that my book also tries to, to trouble. We want to come back to recruitment in, in general, but just since you so recently mentioned the, the wider diaspora and the, the British Empire, there's a, a particular moment when the Irish Canadian Rangers visit. Uh, and I wondered if you could tell us a little about that and, and what sort of issues that that throws up that have a wider significance. Absolutely. So the Irish Canadian Rangers are one of the many Irish units created in the First World War in countries that are not Ireland, but which preserve that Irish designation. They're a voluntary unit uh, raised in Montreal, and it was very clear from the outset that they would enshrine both their Irish designation as well as their Canadian designation. This was done not only in the name of the regiment, but also in its uh, military badge, um, where you have the maple leaf enshrined with the, um, the shamrock, the Irish shamrock, topped with a crown. So very much in the iconography of the unit, you can see, or of the regiment, you can see the sort of blending of Irishness and, um, and a Canadian identity. And they're founded, they're founded by Catholics and Protestants. Again, a very similar kind of picture as I was seeing in Ireland. Um, generally founded by, we would say, again, kind of middle-class people, people who were had been to sort of fairly fancy schools, who were well-known in local communities, who also were very active in parish circles and various things like this. Um, and it was voluntarily recruited, comprising both Irish-born men, but also those who were first and second generation Irish, who deliberately signed up to that unit. And it was decided in uh, sometime in late 1916 um, in the heart of Westminster um, that this unit should do a sort of recruitment propaganda tour of Ireland in early 1917, because it was fundamentally believed that Ireland was not pulling its weight in terms of recruitment. And that's an important point we should we should come back to just to query a little bit. So off went um, uh, one battalion of this regiment. Um, I think it was the 199th battalion that went to Ireland in, in early 1917, January and February 1917, and it toured a number of places. Um, I can't remember the exact order, but it went to Dublin, Belfast, Armagh, Cork and Limerick, um, from what I recall. And this was very interesting because this was a sort of test case of yet another theme that had popped up in the historiography. 
that the Easter Rising had changed people's attitudes towards a war that they were not really supportive of to begin with. And, you know, almost, well, a year later, nine months later, this was going to be a good indicator as to how far the war was unpopular in the public. Um, and I thought this would be a very good sort of way of testing that hypothesis. And I, I actually find the opposite. Um, I did a huge amount of work to find out, can I find dissent in Ireland in January or February 1917? So I explored all of the radical press, including all of the mainstream press and any kind of violence I would expect to find popular and significant dissent. And I did not find any. And that was interesting because, again, it confirmed what I was already thinking, that support for the war in Ireland still remained very strong in early 1917. The, the Easter Rising did not seem to impact that whatsoever. There were crowds of people turning up to all of these events. Although we can really, you know, get into the nitty gritty of crowd behavior. You know, why do people go to events? And they do that for a whole variety of reasons. Still, the fact that we find, well, I find in so many different newspapers, the reports of how people greeted this unit were really, really positive. And some of the meanings extrapolated from their visit included this idea of Irish emigration, people coming home, the pride people had that they were going to all, go off and fight on the side of the Allies. This is something else we need to, maybe we can talk about, the sort of difference now that was sort of happening between the Brit supporting the British war effort and supporting the Allied war effort. Um, but still, it was very much seen to be a, a moment of pride. And there were these sorts of stories whereby, you know, somebody in the unit who saw his family, you know, went and sort of met them and hugged them, et cetera, et cetera. But mainly these are first generation or even second generation Irish Canadians who were passing through Ireland. And, you know, lots of important people met them, including Cardinal Michael Logue. That's the head of the Catholic Church in Ireland. He was incredibly positive towards them. And even those who have been painted as sort of arch Republicans and dissenters, um, such as um, Edward O'Dwyer, Bishop O'Dwyer of Limerick, who had been from the start very critical of the Allied war effort and said, well, actually, the Allies are committing as many atrocities as indeed Germany is. So, you know, this idea of righteousness really needs to be interrogated a bit more. He was very welcoming to the regiment and brought many officers to, to his um, diocesan home. And um, yeah, I mean, all in all, it was it was a very welcoming event. And I struggled to find any indication that the Easter Rising and the nine months that had followed had severely dented attitudes towards war effort at that point in early 1917. Let's pursue that again in a moment. But just be before we get too far from the historiography, I just wanted to go back and think about the question of recruitment, which has been one of the long running debates within historiography, I suppose, back to the mid-1990s when David Fitzpatrick um, published The Logic of Collective Sacrifice in the historical journal. Um, given the points you've made about the Irish-Canadian Rangers and, and how they illuminate a certain set of perhaps surprising attitudes, how would you say it, it's best to summarise why Irish people engaged with the with the war effort in the First World War? Great question. And I think there's no single answer. There are lots of reasons why. And it depends as well as what period of the war you're actually looking at, because they are radically different. So with early 1914, Ireland was no different to the rest of Britain in its sort of rush to the colours. Though I think it's useful just to temper that a little bit. Katrina Pennell and her very important study, which is called The Kingdom United, 
looked very closely at those initial months of war and saw that there was no sort of blind rush to the colours right from the 4th of August, but actually people started to join up more in September whenever the war started to look very serious. So just want to temper that kind of rush to the, the colours sort of narrative. But Ireland matched this pattern. There was a lot of enthusiasm at the start. Numbers were very high. And then this continued into early 1915, at which point they started to decline. Now, when Irish historians look at this, they say, ah, here we go. It begins. The kind of uh, delusion that people had in joining the war effort is starting to set in. Um, and then this would continue right through until the end. A sort of linear picture. It went up a bit and then it went completely down the whole way forward. Or sorry, the whole, the whole uh, for the duration of the war they're on, they're, they're after. Um, but actually, I had a look at British recruitment figures as well. And Ireland is no different insofar as recruitment starts to taper off quite dramatically from early 1915. Now, it gets more complicated when you try to think about the introduction of conscription to Britain in early 1916, as all men over the age of, I think it was 21 to begin with, and that was later lowered to 18. Um, and then that conscription bill is extended in Britain again in April 1918. Now, in both those occasions, Ireland avoided the measure. So it remained an entirely voluntary effort right throughout the war. And, and, and this is my, my caveat is that conscription was going to be implemented in Ireland. And in fact, a bill was passed to do so in April 1918, but not one single man was conscripted. We can talk a little bit about that later. So generally, we have this picture of major trends of people in Ireland and Britain joining up um, in large numbers in 1914, early 1915, and then starting to kind of decline after that. And between 1916 and 18, you can't really do a comparison because you've got conscription in Britain and you don't in Ireland. Um, so that's sort of the broad brush figures. But then you can very easily drill into them. Now, some historians say, well, let's have a look at some major cities in Ireland um, and compare them to Britain. And actually, it's quite lackluster in, in comparison. Well, or even, even country areas, countryside areas or counties. And um, I think that the important point to emerge from this is that people fail to realize that the war offered incentives other than just joining up. It completely inflated prices, which um, though troubled in the first weeks of war, became much more attractive for people to stay at home um, as the months went on and they stabilized at, at high prices. In agricultural places all across those islands, there were fewer enlistees, fewer people who joined up because you need labor to produce, um, well, food for your food for the country, but food also for the war effort. And Ireland is mainly an agricultural place. So there were lots of other ways in which people could engage, which brings me on to the point that actually recruitment itself, this is a very fascinating indicator, but it can obscure as much as anything else. Because if you try to look at how people engage in the war effort in other ways, then you're actually open, opening up your mind to how people engage with the war effort. And in Ireland, actually farmers were very prolific in their produce. And in 1917, when Ireland looked like it might be threatened by German submarine warfare, embarked on a tillage campaign, kind of like a sort of um, feed the nation campaign in, in the Second World War, you know, grow crops wherever you can. And farmers, labourers, people who had access to land were growing as much as they could throughout 1917 and 18, in a way that far surpassed elsewhere in, in Britain. <laughs> Demonstrating that this agricultural dimension is really important when we're thinking about recruitment. If we focus on recruitment alone, the conclusions you might draw from that will indeed be flawed. So let's focus in this, this change over time that you've talked about and 
you suggested we might come back to 1918 and the conscription crisis. And I I think now would be a good chance to do that. So uh, tell us about how about what happened uh, and what impact it had. So in British circles, I should be more specific again, in the government in in Westminster, those halls and cabinets and and various places, people were sceptical that Ireland was pulling its weight. And they knew in by early 1918, you know, they'd undergone the Somme passion deal, you know, massive pushes that had resulted in no real change whatsoever. But crucially, 1918 was very different to any other year. This is in the aftermath of the uh, Eastern Front's collapse because of the Russian Revolution. So Russia disappears from the war. And Germany moves an astonishing amount of armaments and personnel right from the east through to the west. And this is when you get your major sort of movement in war that hadn't been seen to those, since those early weeks of 1914. When we think about the First World War, we think about stalemate, you know, people in trenches, like no real movement whatsoever. And that is true for a large part of it. But in early 1914, and at this moment in 1918, you actually have miles of land being covered by either side um, at different points in time. And this is a very serious moment for the Allies. America still hadn't deployed most of its troops, or indeed arsenal. They wouldn't arrive until later in that year. France was suffering from mutinies in its army, and also kind of the the, um, aftermath of serious battles that it had just been through as well. And really it was the British Third and Fifth Armies that were the ones who had to hold that line to the German advance. And in order to do so, uh, those who were in charge of the, the the war cabinet knew that there was no way they could undertake another voluntary effort to get the number of men who were needed quite urgently. The only way to do that was to extend that conscription range. So reducing the age to 18 and I think bringing it up to 55, if I remember correctly. My book will have the right answer. And um, anyway, there was a strong feeling that British public opinion might not be very willing to accept this expanded age range because of what society had gone through. And it was very much felt, as I said earlier on, that Ireland had evaded so much of the hardship in the war because it had avoided the conscription measures, because so many farmers and labourers were clearly staying at home, and they were seen to be getting off lightly. But this is also part of a view and kind of the mistaken view that many British ministers had of Ireland without really knowing the circumstances at, at the time. So the decision was to expand that age range from 18 through 55 in Britain. But the only way that they would be able to do that, so Adrian Gregory has very convincingly argued, was to conscript Ireland. And they were conscripting Ireland in the notion that they probably wouldn't get one man. And they also were conscripting Ireland knowing that they were going to do severe damage to those very important political discussions over home rule that had most recently been happening since 1912. And they were therefore prepared to actually let those slide in aid of the war effort. The war effort was deemed to be a greater priority. So Ireland was conscripted. Now the response in Ireland was, I think, far greater than what any cabinet minister might have anticipated. The sheer uh, opposition to the war effort was tremendous. Or sorry, sheer opposition, I should say, sorry, to the conscription bill was tremendous. And this has been the confusion in the historiography. I'll come on to that in a second. Not only did ordinary people object to conscription, but the Catholic Church threw its weight behind it as well. And that's because the bill in its current form also threatened to conscript ministers of religion. 
So it was silly in lots of different ways. And obviously the Catholic Church is going to say, no, thank you very much. You can't do that to us. So they, who are in a very forceful, powerful organization in Ireland, helped to prop up this anti-conscription appeal. And through fundraising, petitions, demonstrations, etc., it became really clear that not one man in Ireland was going to agree to conscription. Now, this, this sort of opposition in Ireland, which was so widespread, has been confused by historians as being equated with opposition to the war, right? Because of the huge demonstrations, the flags, we will not be conscripted, et cetera, et cetera. Historians have said, well, this is clearly the Easter Rising taking effect. You know, in the first instance, Ireland was apathetic about the war, or I should say nationalists were apathetic about the war. Then the Easter Rising happened, then they became radicalized, then the conscription crisis demonstrated how much they had lost support of the war. That is roughly the narrative in most of the historiography written about that period. But instead, by drilling into, well, what were people opposing in the, in, during the conscription crisis? That illuminated actually other, other types of things. On the one instance, there was certainly no agreement over what form, what constitutional future Ireland should have. There were people saying, you know, we need home rule now. There were others saying, um, we need a republic. There were others saying, home rule is not working, we need a new solution. You had kind of new, different takes on how this long-term question between Britain and Ireland and those relations between them should indeed be solved. So there was no mass Republican opposition. It was very fragmented and patchy. Lots of different views at that point in early 1918 as to what Ireland's future might look like. Similarly, it illuminated really interesting debates in county councils and other places regarding this crucial question over if Ireland is not going to be, or Irish men are not going to be conscripted, can they still voluntarily join up? And this is really interesting. In lots of county councils, these debates were had, and it was quite clear in almost all of them that while most people were against conscription, and certainly most who would have been of a nationalist persuasion were absolutely against conscription, their sympathies were entirely with the Allies, entirely. And that makes complete sense. Not only had Ireland thrown its weight behind the Allied war effort, not only did it have all these connections through emigration and diaspora, not only in the empire, but certainly by America. And not only was America such a sort of golden idea in the eyes of Irish nationalists, of course, you were going to throw the weight behind the Allies. This link between Ireland and Germany, which some historians flag up as being somehow greater than that of the Allies, was such a minority link. And there are really good instances of showing why that is so inconsequential during this time as well. So the conscription crisis in some had nothing to do with opposition to the war effort. It was uh, a chance to air grievances against Westminster, which had been stoked certainly since the rising, not diminishing the importance of the rising here, but also the crucial point that Westminster did not have the consent of the Irish people. And that was the whole point upon which the nationalist movement had been based. Westminster does not dictate affairs for Irish people. That has to be dictated through a parliament in Dublin. And this was the ultimate negation of what Irish nationalists over so many decades had indeed been campaigning for. So for them, it was fundamentally this issue of consent that emerged from these debates. So you highlighted uh, continued support for the Allied war effort with the emphasis on Allied rather than British in 1918. You mentioned earlier that, that there are many ways of supporting the war effort other than joining the armed forces. Um, until uh, Fanula Walsh's book on women and the Great War in Ireland, there, there was relatively little published on this. But you've also got things to say about 
women's engagement with the war. So I wondered if you could tell us about that subject. Absolutely. Um, so women are so often and were so often left out of the war. Uh, it's very much it's a masculine topic. Um, men are generally interested in it for the, the soldiers and guns and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And women, if they're at all, it's sort of, oh, well, they're sort of in a humanitarian capacity, caring and looking after children or something like this. So it's an inherently a gendered topic in how you approach it. But actually, you know, we forget that when many of the men went away, this was one of the few times where women were able to do jobs that normally they couldn't have done, whether it was taxi drivers, tram drivers, uh, working as post office workers, whatever indeed it might be. So in a way, lots of feminists at the time, I think we can use that word for them, suffrage activists anyway, felt that actually the war might have been a great liberating event for women. Now, in the end, when the men came home, it was very much made clear that the women should be kicked out of all of those jobs and the men should be given them back, back to a gendered normality, which then persisted for many decades thereafter. So you see similar things within Ireland. You see similar things with women engaging in jobs that they wouldn't have done beforehand. You see women now becoming very active in civil society sort of circles, fundraising for troops. Yes, engaging in those traditional gendered spheres of caring for soldiers or the wounded or fundraising for them or holding fets and galas for them. You know, this is no kind of massive feminist revolution here. Those gendered ideals of accepted behaviour for women are still very much present in how women engage with the war effort. Um, so my book tries to bring out some of that engagement. And um, there are so many different types of societies, um, uh, from the fundraising to the fets to the galas to the competitions to the caregiving, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm going to mention one which I thought was quite interesting. And though these all demonstrate women's engagement and women who are generally involved in managing these events are, again, broadly the kind of wives of the big shakers in time, et cetera, so really the sort of established middle classes, those who are doing a lot of the work are much more mixed in terms of their backgrounds. And one, one organisation that caught my attention was the Women's Sphagnum Moss Depot. I don't think they call themselves the Women's Sphagnum Moss Depot, but they were basically all women, or at least I'd say 90, 95% women, so they kind of were. And they were founded in Dublin by Elsie Henry, who is the wife of Augustine Henry. He himself was a, uh, a very renowned botanist in before the First World War, who was interested in forestry. And Elsie was equally interested and they went off and they did research together and looked at things and had lots of written loads of diaries about all these amazing plants that she's found. And um, clearly a researcher, you know, really interested in the detail. But when more struck, they started to think about some of the properties of plants in Ireland and how they could be usefully deployed. And they were interested in moss, the particular variety of moss called sphagnum moss, which can be found all over Ireland because uh, it grows very well in, in peaty areas, so areas with a lot of peat and therefore moisture, etc. which for those of you who've been to Ireland know that that's quite a common feature of, of the weather. And sphagnum moss, they find, had amazing absorbent properties. Not only was it incredibly light to transport, but it was really, really good at soaking things up. And also, I think, had some sort of uh, medicinal kind of antibacterial properties as well. So they realised that actually this could be a wonderful way to uh, be a sort of substitute bandage for people who had been wounded. And they started this organization, which relied on moss pickers all across the island of Ireland to pick moss. Now, this is no easy enterprise. If any of you have been to a peat bog, you will know that it's not exactly easy to access. 
right? You're probably going up some rickety road 100 years ago. You know, you're, you're tramping out you're, you're, uh, into the kind of peat bog itself. You're digging things up. You know, it's a very laborious effort. And I find reports of, of, of women, elderly women, voluntarily going to do this with a big sack of moss over their backs, backbreaking work, bringing it then to the cart, which would then go to the local depot, and it would then be sent to Dublin for processing and then shipping. So these sorts of organizations started by women, uh, participated in by women, became really important, not only in Ireland, but they were found, they were spotted in an international capacity. Soon after, Canada, Britain, America, were all trying to use sphagnum moss as a sort of substitute bandage when in an era where bandages were needed very rapidly, and there certainly was not enough of them. So I think that's just something to keep in mind as well about women's engagement in that intellectual way, because we know wars are very good for technological advancement. We rarely think of anything beyond the military advancement of the war, but here we have medical advancement in which women played a core role in Ireland and ended up playing a core role in the wider war effort as a whole. And women lose their lives, of course, um, because of the war at sea. Uh, their, their passengers, um, sometimes travelling for war work, but, but, but otherwise for, for other reasons, on the many ships that are sunk due to unrestricted submarine warfare. And this has a wider impact on Ireland. And I, I think the war at sea is often neglected for um, the, the mud of the Western Front. Could you tell us how you see the war at sea being significant to Ireland? Absolutely, yes. So, Richard, I think I'd even go further to say that more or less until my book, the war at sea was absent from mainstream historical works of the First World War. And I mean absent. There have been local historians who are fascinated by this dimension and who've written a couple of books and say the Lusitania, which was a ship sunk on the 7th of May 1915 off the coast of Cork. But this is seen to be almost like a hobby, hobbyist enterprise. The war at sea is not mentioned in accounts of the First World War. And for those who talk about this, um, who sort of cite this story, this, this narrative of the Irish or Irish nationalists being against the war effort, apathetic towards the war effort and then against the war effort, for them, they have no, the war at sea is not on their horizon whatsoever. But what I find is actually the war at sea is probably one of the most significant significant aspects of the First World War that keeps Ireland behind the Allies. I found some maps of the war at sea itself in 1917, when Germany embarks in its unrestricted submarine warfare campaign. And while this is more well better known, usually in Britain, it's forgotten that so much of that war at sea happens in the Irish Sea and in the North Sea and in the kind of sea surrounding um, the island of Ireland, but also in Britain as well. And I have some maps in my book, which are well worth looking at, just to kind of get a sense of, um, I think those maps even show vessels that were successfully sunk, rather than those who were attacked. So the numbers would be greater again. And so much of this happened around the coastline of Ireland and affected women, children, men, anybody who was traveling in, in, in passenger ships or indeed lived on the, on the island themselves. The Lusitania is a very big example. Um, and I think my book spends quite a lot of time looking at it. I think the Lusitania is really one of those sort of, if I can use a modern day comparison, but hopefully one that will work, a 9-11 moment, a sort of significant moment that sort of changes conceptions and changes how discourse is spoken about for you know, the years that follow, 
The Lusitania is that sort of moment. This is a, a ship that was traveling from New York onto Liverpool, torpedoed by a German U-boat off the coast of Cork. It kills more people than the Titanic, yet of course the Titanic has all that popular resonance and memory, for Lusitania, not really. And all of those bodies, indeed bodies that were there and indeed those who were injured, came to Cork. It was a huge local effort to try and help as quickly as they could. And then there were visitors flocking to Cork to try to identify the dead, et cetera, et cetera. So what you have from this event are a number of different things which are important for influencing public opinion. You have, first of all, gossip. We forget how important gossip is. When people actually turn up and see what's happened to these people who those who would have died in really nasty conditions and their kind of rigor mortis sets in in nasty ways, how this, this kind of gossip then starts to transcend through communities that they had seen what the Germans had done. Very rapidly, it was established that it was a German U-boat that sunk the RMS Lusitania through a court appeal, um, or sort of a, a local court adjudication that happened within days of it of it following. And very clearly, the result was this was the Ger this was the Germans who had done this. You had, you know, I can say all these people coming to Cork, looking for relatives, uh, people trying to help them with accommodation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You had the sort of humanitarian dimension of those who had lost family members, like children losing parents, etc., and local people stepping in to help. You had the mass burials that needed to happen within a short space of time. So then local regiments, and actually some of their first experience of war was in Cork, was digging these mass graves for these who were um, affected by, or those who were killed by the by the U-boat. So all in all, well, and, and then this event got translated right throughout the national press. The photographs, the reports, the, the sort of um, the kind of sensationalized stories from survivors who tell of the harrowing circumstances upon which they survived, um, and then the kind of the sort of the, the the element that always strikes a chord in 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 Irish or nationalist hearts at that time, which is a sort of pathos of emigration. Right? Emigration was a sort of necessity for Ireland, but also a lamentation. People didn't like to see people emigrate, but they knew that they had to. And there were stories of people coming home to Ireland on the RMS Lusitania for the first time. They were coming home to see their family who they hadn't seen in 15 years because they've been earning money in, in New York and now they've been killed. So this kind of added this additional sense of lamentation to the whole thing. And there was a fundraising appeal set up for the Lusitania. I can't remember the exact number right now, but it was incredibly high. Um, that is one of the things that strikes me to write, that actually Irish people were so generous with their money right throughout the war effort. So much so that the Red Cross noticed it at the end, into the 20s. And in their final report to the British Isles during the war, said that actually the three southern provinces of Ireland stood out the most in terms of the proportion of the, the funds that they gave. So people were incredibly generous. The war at sea then continues. It wasn't just the Lusitania, it was several other boats. Another one a handful of years later was the RMS Leinster, which was a postal ship, a mail service ship, sunk between Dublin and, and Liverpool. Um, or Dublin Hollyhead, actually. Um, and in the meantime, you had other aspects of the war at sea. You had mines that were laid around the Irish coast, and then fishermen would unfortunately happen upon them, and the end result was, as you can imagine. And these sorts of things were devastating for local communities because local fishing towns, you know, often the sort of a family that went out together or a kind of very tight-knit community. So just like those early battles in the war have been so devastating, and those new armies that were recruited from local villages, et cetera, where everybody might be decimated at once. Similarly, 
when something like this happened, you know, a fisherman strike a mine, you had that similar kind of impact um, at that local level. And this happened all throughout the war. And in fact, it, one of the reasons why Irish farmers and laborers and those involved in agricultural work engaged so much in this tillage campaign that I mentioned from 1917 was because of one, the fear that uh, food imports would be restricted to Ireland because of this German submarine warfare, and two, a very profound national memory, a huge tragedy in the Irish psyche, which was the Great Famine. And those two things are very rapidly combined. If food imports are shut off to Ireland, we might be looking at another Great Famine. And there is no better motivator for those involved in agricultural work to make sure they had enough food to protect themselves in that eventuality than the Great Famine of 1845 through to 1852. So yes, the war at sea, I think, was so profound in triggering long-term national memories in uh, bringing that kind of immediacy of the war, that kind of those narratives, a sort of German barbarism, etc., that had been in currency, bringing all those through to the forefront. So yes, I think in some ways it would be even more important than what was happening in either the Western Front or in Mesopotamia um, for bringing local people really full into um, the, the, the First World War. Interesting to hear you talk about historical memory, which is really where I wanted to draw to a close. Uh, you've had direct engagement with the uh, processes around the centenary of Northern Ireland as, as an advisor to official things that have been taking place. Um, and I just wondered if you could briefly reflect on where you think memory of the First World War now stands. I think it's much better. I think for a large part, well, let me let me go back a bit. My book, my book actually describes and thinks and looks at memory in the immediate decades after the war, which no one had really properly done. Jim Leonard had done a little bit of work on this, but I tried to look at it a little more consistently, but still, there's a good project there for somebody who wants to look at it properly. And I did it because there was a very striking article written by FX Martin, Francis Xavier Martin, who himself was a military chaplain in the First World War, and he wrote an article in 1967 talking about the great amnesia in Ireland that existed um, in nationalist memory over the First World War. And so I tried to see, OK, how does this amnesia square with that long 20th century? Is it there for the whole period? When does it set in, et cetera, et cetera? Or indeed, was it even there? And for the 20s and 30s, I think there is active remembrance of the First World War in Ireland, without a doubt. You have war memorials set up like you do all across Britain. You have the local commemorations, you have the fundraising for them, et cetera, et cetera. But it is much more complicated, especially as the years go on, because you have a new generation of young people who have grown up for whom the First World War is not their immediate memory, but they are born and bred on the kind of myths of 1916, the War of Independence, you know, Ireland for the Irish, much more kind of inward focused sense of self tied up with the kind of new state that um, the government's successive governments are trying to build from 1922 onwards. Um, and as time goes on as well, you have emigration, you have people who are dying, you have uh, new political imperatives, right? big trade war between Ireland and Britain, you get de Valera, President Eamon de Valera coming, coming, well, he wasn't president at that time, but becoming the Taoiseach, so i.e. the Prime Minister of Ireland in 1932 when his party re-entered the fold, that's Fianna Fáil, um, and de Valera had been 
you know, he was a, a radical involved in the Easter Rising in a minor capacity, but shot to fame when all the leaders were indeed killed and he had natural qualities that brought him to the fore as well. Um, but, you know, for him, Ireland needed to be remade in a way that was not British. So any association with British needed to be limited or cast off as quickly as possible. And these were his political priorities in the 1930s and diminishing the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which was the document signed in the aftermath of the War of Independence between Irish and British representatives, was something he was also very much against. Sorry, sorry, he was very much in favour of diminishing the agreement that had been signed. He had helped to lead the anti-treaty side in the Civil War in Ireland. So really bringing the anti-treaty side back into the 1930s was coupled with creating a new Ireland, one that was away from and divested from British influence. And the First World War didn't fit into that very well. So it was not on the top of his agenda. If anything, he wanted to dampen any sort of memory around it. Now, the Second World War changes things again, very briefly. It's um, the neutrality that Ireland experienced in, in the Second World War, again, even Drevelera's policy, um, was coupled up with this idea of sovereignty, that those 26 counties that were Ireland would be neutral, and therefore Ireland would be expressing its sovereignty and not get tied up in a bigger war like it did in the First World War. So the First World War was certainly influencing some of the memory and policy decisions made in the Second. But in those decades that followed, the First World War was sufficiently far away and not a political priority of the parties. And indeed, a, far, a new generation who had been born and bred in Ireland with new national myths and stories, that it was not a priority. So I think for a large part of that second half of the 20th century, certainly from the 1960s onwards, you can see some of the truth in what Francis Xavier Martin said in his 1967 article. But all of that starts to change this century. And uh, back in what we're now probably going to call the good old days, so the sort of 2010 period through to maybe 2016, maybe even slightly before that, um, Anglo-Irish relations were actually quite strong. And they were strong due to a number of factors. Northern Ireland seemed to be actually getting on with stuff since 2007. The Stormont executive had been restored. Power sharing seemed to be work, seemed to be working. Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley, first and deputy first minister, seemed to be cooperating. Actually, you know, that seemed like a resolution to a very, you know, long process. The troubles which sort of started in 1968 over civil rights protests against one party state unionist government, which had broken into something much more protracted and long term. Uh, not resolved in 1998 by the Good Friday Agreement, but you know the kind of uh, that was a really important milestone certainly. But in those years that followed, the kind of attempt to establish a power-sharing government, therefore giving priority to nationalist and unionist parties, so that no one party could dominate the other, as had been done for the first 40 years of Stormont's history. So Martin McGuinness, who had been uh, who's in Sinn Féin, of course, Ian Paisley, DUP. Had, were cooperating. Northern Ireland was actually working. Secondly, between the Republic of Ireland and Britain, relations were quite good as well. The Queen, for the first time in her history, had come over to visit Ireland in 2011 and then came over and, and visited Northern Ireland the following year. And in those occasions, you know, she met Martin McGuinness. You had these kind of profound moments where a former IRA man is meeting the British monarch. And kind of it seemed like, in a way, the ultimate public example of reconciliation. And all of this really helped to sort of neutralize any of those very nationalistic sentiments that had been bound up with the First World War. Coupled with the centenary of the war that happened in 2014, you have an outpouring of memory in Ireland regarding that event. 
And when the Queen came over to visit, she very clearly went to the Garden of Remembrance, a sort of sacred ground for Irish revolutionary heroes, but also went to Island Bridge, which is where the, the First World War dead, or some of them at least, are buried. And so the First World War sort of was brought back into Irish national memory. It was seen, and I think invested with new meaning about reconciliation, that it could be an event that both Protestants and Catholics could get behind, and that might kind of help to heal some of the sorts of long-term wounds between Britain and Ireland, mainly held by the Irish, the, the, the British really held very many of them at all, but those kind of, you know, getting over those sorts of um, grieving processes that were there. And I have to say, all of that looked really positive through until 2016, the Brexit, the Brexit vote. Now Anglo-Irish relations are not good. You can't kid yourself that, that they are very good. Um, new imperatives are, you know, new, new assumptions and meanings have been put onto the Good Friday Agreement with the creation of the Northern Irish Protocol, which does fundamentally change that relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. It's already affecting trading imperatives within the island of Ireland, increased trade between the North and indeed the South. So, you know, these are very difficult moments again for Anglo-Irish relations. And where does the First World War sit within those? In some ways, it's too early to say, but in some ways you can see reactions happening in places. So the memory of the First World War is not one single national homogenous memory. Lots of different groups use memories of these events for their own advantage. And in loyalist communities in Northern Ireland, the First World War is very much bound up with a particular idea of heritage. This idea that Ulster, defined as the six counties, not the nine, so not Cavan, like I mentioned earlier on, which is an Ulster, it is not part of the Ulster that loyalists define as theirs, which is effectively the six-county Northern Ireland. And they have a particular memory stretching back to the Somme, the 1st of July 1916, when a 36th Ulster division, in which a lot of loyalists serve, but again, like that general picture, they served in lots of places, but still the 36th is very important. And the losses in that first day of the Somme were huge, by five and a half thousand uh, men, casualties, wounded, missing, killed. Um, so loyalist memory of that event in 1916, coupled with their memories of resistance to the IRA through the Troubles, through to ideas of defence, to ideas of stretching further back, 1690, right, when the original, uh, when William of Orange defeated the Catholic King James, and this sort of event is very central to working class Protestant culture and memory. So you have this sort of collapsing of time from 1690 right through until well, the, the formation of the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, paramilitary organization in 1913, through to the Psalm, which kind of is a sort of crescendo in these sorts of, you know, in, in this sort of uh, narrative, right through until the UVF and all those other loyalist organizations during the Troubles. And for them, they did not like this reconciliation narrative because this reconciliation narrative was trying to take ownership of the First World War. And as far as they were concerned, they owned the war, not those who wanted to cooperate and get along. So, you know, Brexit, if anything, has intensified this. Um, and, you know, we can fully expect to see memories of this First World War and the other conflicts changing as our political present changes itself. Yes, the, the past is very tied up with the present in this sense, isn't it? Um, thank you very much, Neve, for a fascinating talk. Um, for people to find out more, I would suggest they buy your book, not least because it's now out in paperback at a more 
affordable price. It really is an excellent book. It won the 2020 Whitfield Prize given by the Royal Historical Society, which is a really prestigious prize and I think is a tribute to the to the quality of the work in there. Back to you, Tom. Well, it's not really much more I can say for that uh, wonderful uh exposition of Irish history. I'm sitting in a very sunny Belfast, which is somewhat unusual, and hopefully the sunlight will continue shining. So thank you very much for both of you uh, and your efforts today. It was fantastic, and we'll return back to our normal format next week. So thank you. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.